please be seated. Please take out the insert or turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians today, chapter 8. If you weren't here earlier uh, before the service when Jason made the announcement, um, due to the cataclysmic weather event that is unfolding, we will not have church tonight. Uh, We will have church next Sunday night, and it will be the pageant that week. So we'll push the pageant to next Sunday. And uh, if you won't be here because of that, uh, please let uh, Allie Stark know so she can make plans. But that, uh, I'm, you know, I'm joking to some degree. There, it is going to snow all day probably, so it would be safer not to have that tonight. We are in the third week of Advent, and I am doing a four-week series taking some of the practical impacts of the incarnation of Jesus and putting those before us, usually picking a particular passage and drawing from it. Now, I recognize that God becoming man is a subject so deep that no amount of sermons could begin to plumb the depths of it, Uh, but we will humbly try to extract from these passages that do have in their midst uh, reference to the Incarnation, um, implications or applications, ways in which we should be thinking uh, because of the Incarnation. This is such a passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. You'll notice it's 2 Corinthians. So it's the second inspired letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. He wrote uh, what we imagine are several letters and visited there at least two times, maybe three times. He visited the first time on his second missionary journey that we studied in the book of Acts. He returned there in his third missionary journey. Um, Corinth was a place near and dear to him because it was such a raw church. It was in a, a very worldly place with all sorts of obstacles that would get in the way of a new believer. Um, Their background was not religious, it was pagan. And so when you became a believer in Corinth, you had lots of baggage that you would bring with, habits and practices and ways of thinking, more so than some of the other places. And so Paul spent uh, quite a bit of time and attention with the Corinthians. Um, He had sent some uh, some of those men that he discipled through Corinth to check on them. Um, He wrote one letter, the first letter, which was difficult because he had to correct several serious issues that had arisen in the church. In the first letter, he mentions to the new believers who were on fire for the Lord. They just had lots of baggage, as I mentioned. But he mentions the need for an offering to go to Jerusalem. Now, you remember that offering because in the book of Acts, we left off with Paul bringing the offering that he had been collecting over two years to bring to the beleaguered, the suffering, the persecuted Christians in Jerusalem. So he mentions that in the first letter, and apparently there was some initial responsiveness from the Corinthians to give. We want to give to help with this. They were excited about it. But nothing had come. And so in the second letter to the Corinthians that we're reading now, Paul references their initial eagerness to give, but they hadn't yet. And so he refers them to churches in northern Macedonia, northern Greece, like Philippi and Thessalonica, Galatia, they had given, and they were much less well-off compared to the Corinthians. So he appeals to their generosity. He reminds them of their eagerness in Christ. But the central feature of the passage is the incarnation of Jesus. This is the reference uh, that he makes to compel them to be giving. Now, giving could happen in all sorts of ways. But here he's talking about taking up an offering, a monetary offering. And so with that preface... Let's now go to the passage, 2 Corinthians 8. I will read verses 1 through 15. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God 
that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness is in desiring, in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burden. But that is a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their needs so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord Jesus, if your incarnation and substitutionary death were your only acts of grace towards us, we would be indebted for eternity. Yet you didn't stop at your work on the cross. Instead, you pour out blessing upon blessing day after day. In response to your generous grace, make us a generous people in all ways, especially with material things. Lord, help us not to love these things. Help us to love you. Put them into your service. In proportion to our apprehension of your grace to us in Christ, O God, make us to be willing to give and even be sacrificial in that giving. Pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. I don't know what spurred the famous Scottish pastor to say what he said in the middle 1800s, but Robert Murray McShane said this to his congregation in the midst of a sermon. He said, I fear there are many hearing me who now know well that they are not Christians because they do not love to give. To give largely and liberally, not grudgingly at all, requires a new heart. An old heart would rather part with its life's blood than its money. Oh, my friends, you better enjoy your money, make the most of it, give none of it away, enjoy it quickly, for I can tell you, you will be beggars throughout eternity. Pretty confrontational from the Scottish pastor, don't you think? I only wish I could do it in his accent. He was right, though, in this way. If you really understand the grace of God in Christ, that God would become man to then pay for our sins, if you really comprehend that grace to us, 
you will be generous. And I know there are many ways to be generous. The time you have to give to serving God, the talents you have, for sure, those are part of it. But in this particular passage, Paul is writing to have them give an offering that is needed for those who are suffering. If you have a new heart that comes with knowing Christ, you will necessarily have a very different view of money and stuff. Apprehension of God's grace to us through Christ's incarnation and sacrifice produces generosity in us. You know, I think of this gauge for my own life every year. It's right about this time. Not just because of Christmas time where we give, uh, we spend money to buy things for people and so forth, um, but pretty soon you'll get your W-2s from your places of employment or whatever uh, document you get for the job you have. Uh, pretty soon you'll also get statements uh, regarding what you gave to various charitable organizations um, that you can use, I think you can still use anyways, in your tax returns. And I, I know that there are many ways to give, but in particular, this passage is talking about money. And I was thinking about this as it relates to the beginning of a new year in this prospect of doing our taxes. In this concept that the apprehension of God's grace to us through Christ's incarnation and substitute and sacrifice um, produces generosity in us. Here's the thing. Here's going to be the objective reality. You're going to get your W-2s and you're going to get your giving statements and you cannot deny that your giving statements show your apprehension of God's grace. Period. No excuses. They do. I'm not saying amounts. Only you know the amounts as they're relative to your W-2s. But if we are saved and we believe what God has done for us is the most generous thing that could ever be done. We don't just say it when we're talking about the Christmas story. We're trying to chill our kids out from being greedy or too anxious to get their gifts. Don't you remember, this is just to remind us that this is the greatest gift that God ever gave. If you really mean those words, look at your charitable giving statements. That's what will tell the story. Or you know what I mean. Your checkbook or your record of wherever and however you're generous with what God has given you as a stewardship. It's a powerful, powerful mechanism to determine And I think it speaks to the heart of what Paul's getting at when he tries to compel the Corinthians to be generous, especially towards those in Jerusalem who are struggling. The passage before us is about a specific incident, and I want you to recognize it because we shouldn't just make it say something. We should see what it's saying and then note the application for today. The church during the first century was organized first in Jerusalem. It's where Jesus ministered, where he died, where he rose again and ascended. The city of Jerusalem. It's where Pentecost first came. It's the epicenter of Christianity, as it were. The problem was, Jerusalem was already in the negative focus of the Romans. The Jewish presence there, their temple and everything about what they did, was an offense to Rome. It was a thumbing their nose at Rome's sovereignty. So Rome was always pressing on Jerusalem and the Jews, and the Jews were always pushing back. So there was already a negative focus on the Jews in Jerusalem. But then when many of those Jews became Christians, or at least a good number of them did, um, they became a sect of the Jews who were more rebels as far as the Romans were concerned. The problem is the Jewish people didn't like the Christians either because they were bringing more negative focus, and they pressed on the Christians also. So when a famine came about this time frame, and there was some level of welfare given by the Roman government and those who were compelled to give towards it, the Christians were the last ones who would get any handouts. So the Jewish Christians were under serious duress. Persecution and real suffering and famine had beset them. So as Paul's traveling around the region that makes a circle around the Mediterranean and back to Jerusalem, he is gathering offerings, he and his 
partners and his assistants so they can bring it back, a monetary offering, so they could buy food and, and provide for their sustenance. And he does this over a year or two where he's raising these funds. And he was raising those funds the first time he went through Corinth, and he makes mention in this second letter to them about this need. He basically says that your apprehension about the grace of God and Christ that you are celebrating, that you've been renewed by, it will be demonstrated the depth of that apprehension will be demonstrated by your generosity. And he makes that case in his appeal in 2 Corinthians 8. Look first at what he refers to in the opening seven verses, where he points to the generosity of the other churches, like the ones in Philippi and Thessalonica, Galatia. The generosity of these other Christians points the Corinthians to God's grace as the motive to give. And it points us to the same. Incredible generosity from these beleaguered Christians in the Macedonian churches. Macedonia means the Greek churches. You can't get much more needy than the Macedonian Christians except for those in Jerusalem. Verse 1, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. See, God shows his grace to those churches and even the situation they find themselves in Their test of affliction is part of God's gracious hand because it changes their view about stuff to the point that they're willing to give it away when they see someone has a need. God's grace is being poured out on this church. They're poor, but they're rich in God's grace. And this evidences in an outflow about the grace of God, verse 1, that has been given among the churches of Macedonia for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed. Have you ever heard, thought of that uh, extreme poverty and attach the word overflow from that? But this is the case because of the grace they've received from God. They have an apprehension of God's grace in Christ. So even though they're in affliction and they're in difficulty, a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy because of their being in Christ, and their extreme poverty, they come together to overflow in a wealth of generosity on their part. Um, They know that the power of salvation shown to them is so rich that even though they're poor, they can give if there's opportunity to give. And they're excited about this. They're desirous of this. I read somewhere, and I've used it before as a quote, and I don't know where it's from, and I've even Googled it, and I can't figure out exactly who said it. It's not me. One can give out of extreme poverty, and one can give out of measureless riches. Those who are disinclined to be generous when they are poor are not likely to become suddenly generous when they are rich. Please note right here, the generosity isn't about the amount that you give or the amount that they give. It's about the heart from which they give it. Verse 3, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, Paul says, and beyond their means of their own accord. I think what he means to say is their means within what they had at their disposal, but they even gave in such a way as to take away from what they had as necessity so someone else could have. It's sacrificial what he's defining here. Now, Paul's not telling the Corinthians to do this. In fact, he qualifies what he's telling them or asking them to do. But he's just describing what these Greek Christians are doing. It's an amazing show of their apprehension of God's grace that they give this way. Generous giving, it can hurt a bit on some level. It costs something. Paul wasn't shaming them into giving. He didn't have to do a capital campaign. He made the need known, and they gave generously in the Macedonian church. Of their own accord, it says. 
In fact, notice they're so eager to give, it says in verse 4, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. You can imagine it going something like this. They're in uh, Philippi, and they're describing how Christianity is going in the other parts of the world, and they mention that the Jerusalem church is really suffering. Now, knowing Philippi is suffering too, Paul wasn't making an appeal, maybe just saying, hey, there's real suffering. And then they say, their response is, how can we help? What do you mean, how can you help? I mean, you hardly have anything. No, how can we help? That's what I think is happening in verse 4. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. It's sort of like a story I heard from a missionary, and I think I heard it here when someone was reporting a few years back where they had known of uh, a missionary effort in North Korea that was very, very uh, uh, covert. And there were Christians that were in the North Korean army who were meeting with South Korean army uh, or soldiers, and they're in the DMZ. And in some way there, when they got a secret moment, the North Koreans said to the South Koreans that were Christians, and the South Koreans were as well. Somehow they indicated or knew this was the case. I don't remember the full of the story. But in this, it, it's stuck with me ever since. The only things the North Koreans said that really were clear, how can we give our tithe? We want to be able to give our tithe and we want to participate in communion. They didn't know how they could do communion in that brief time they had, but they wanted to give an offering to the South Korean church. What could they have had? I mean, really, what could they have had to give? But they were so compelled by their salvation that their current earthly situation, as dire as it was, did, it was, they were not bound by it. They were not slaves to it. And they wanted to be able to do something to show their appreciation for God's grace to them and for those who also had experienced the grace of God and may have had need for it, at least the church had need for it, to do its mission. For, back to the passage, verse 4. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. In this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to the will of God, by the will of God to us. So they were already prepared when, when Paul and company went through Macedonia and made the need known. They weren't compelling him to be there and saying, please, you know, we'd like to give you an opportunity to give. They didn't say that. It doesn't seem to be. In fact, it seems to say that way. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves. They were prepared by God and the work of God in their heart and their life to give. As a Christian church, we're part of the body of Christ. And that union that we have with other Christians transcends national borders. As Christians, we're united with many tribes and nations. When the need arose in Jerusalem and it was made known, the Greek Christians were so moved with compassion, so united by the Savior who bought them. Despite their own shortfalls and difficulties, they begged Paul to let them be part. This is the example that Paul refers to when he's starting to compel the Corinthians to exercise this generosity. In fact, he says to them, you know, we got somebody there, Titus, who is ready to take your offering. Verse 6, accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. So Corinthians, while you're thinking about it, and you said it before, you're interested, now you got the chance, and Titus is there, he can take, he's ready to take your offering. You're doing great, Corinthians. You're growing in so many ways. But here's a way that still remains. Now, I don't know that this is a technical statement by Paul. I've thought about this long and hard. They become Christians. They've grown in so many ways. Look at verse 7. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, they're learning the faith. They can speak what the faith means. They can tell you what the gospel is. They're growing in grace. In all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. 
So you're growing in a lot of ways, Corinthians, but in this area of giving, you're still holding back a little. What I'm saying is, I don't know if it's a technical part of our discipleship that letting loose of material things is the last thing that really impacts us as believers. I don't know the answer to it. I can say that I think it's true in my own discipleship, in my own context, growing up in a, in a fluent country compared to the rest of the world and having more than enough. Um, it does seem to be kind of that last thing um, that, that you give over to the Lord. I'm not saying it's true for you, but it does make sense that I could speak, I could speak fluently about the gospel, be passionate about it, but if you knew what I gave or how I was generous, what would that say? And that's challenging to me because I see that here. The Corinthians are growing leaps and bounds, but Paul's saying, but there's an area. There's still an area here. See that you excel in this act of grace also. So being generous, he calls an act of grace. It's an extension of the grace we apprehend that God has given to us. We're not stingy in this way. An act of grace. Seeing how generous other believers are is inspiring and motivating, certainly, and the Corinthians are hearing this from Paul. But most importantly, the greatest motivation for our being generous, the thing that made those Macedonian Christians generous, comes in verse 8 and verse 9. Look there with me. We have for us the model for generosity. I say this not as a command, so I'm not, giving you a, a, I'm not dictating to you something here, but to prove by the earnestness of others, the Macedonian Christians, that your, lo- your love also is genuine. So when you see this example, you'll have opportunity to show your earnestness too in the faith. And here it is, verse 9. I say this not as a command, or excuse me, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he goes right to the person of Christ. He's been mentioning Christians in Macedonia, but now let's go to Christ. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that undeserved favor that Christ showed to us, that undeserved favor shown to us who deserve wrath. You know that grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, and you can't get any more rich than Christ, uh, Christ in eternity, he is with the Father in full glory and has all riches you can possibly imagine. It's, it's only put in those terms so we can start to gather it, but more than we could ever imagine. And though he was that kind of rich, for your sake, for my sake, he became poor. There's the incarnation. He became poor. So that you, by his poverty, coming for us, might become rich. And we know that richness spoken of here is not monetary. It hasn't been from the beginning. The Macedonian Christians are clearly rich but they're extremely poor as it relates to material things. It's so much greater than material wealth. And that's what he's referring to, that Jesus would become poor so that we might become rich. You cannot give any example that is greater than this. Even people who have laid down their life for someone else, we would say is the ultimate show of generosity, and it is. But it's still not greater than what God the Son did for us. And that's the basis for our generosity, Coming as a man, he then took our place, paid for our sins on the cross. His sacrifice was accepted by the Father. We in him are accepted by God. Now we have eternal life. It's not just this brief life where the material stuff we have fades and rusts and moths eat it. No, we, we have proper perspective on that now. That grace God's shown us has given us eternal life. Now we have life everlasting in all the richness of fellowship with God. That's richness in verse 9 once again. 
For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by you so that you by his poverty might become rich. That's it. That is it right in a nutshell. The sacrifice of the Macedonians for others is one thing. The sacrifice of Christ for us is quite another. And the sacrifice of the Macedonians was because they understood the sacrifice of Christ. That's generosity in the incarnation and how they relate. If you believe the gospel, you will necessarily be generous. It has nothing to do with the amount you can give. That's completely different for everybody based on how God decides to give you a stewardship. It has to do with the mindset about the stuff we have and the generosity and the opportunities for it um, that we take advantage of. David Garland in his commentary on 2 Corinthians said, when we have been the beneficiaries of such undeserved grace, how can true Christians shut their hearts or purses to brothers and sisters in need or begrudge every penny that they may share with others? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. What a passage. What a central, what a motivator for our own generosity. Or when we're pausing about giving, uh, to see that there was no pause from God to send his son. There's no indication there was some delay. Um, God gave of his son, um, who prayed in John 17, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. He had that glory with the Father, but yet he became poor so that we might experience some of that richness in Philippians 2 that we referred to last week. Though he was in the form of God, ultimate rich, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men." absolutely, you should not get annoyed when you hear the bell ring. You should look forward to be able to put some money in that pot. What an opportunity. So many opportunities. How blessed we are to pick from any number of things that have eternal significance that we can give material fading things to and actually impact eternity with. Thank you, God, that you would save us, give us eternal life, and then give us opportunity with stuff that fades and turn it into something eternal by giving. When opportunity arises, generosity to others is the embodiment of Christ's incarnation, the greatest act of grace of all. I've been studying a bit uh, for this church history class I'm doing Sunday school, and mostly the studying is trying to figure out what parts do I cut out and still be able to look at myself in the mirror afterwards. Um, Spending 90 minutes on a 1,000 years of church history is very painful for me, but I know that it's important to teach this class to give overview. But there are some things that hit the cutting room floor that I cannot resist putting into the sermon some way, shape, or form. And one of them is what Gregory Nazianzus said, which is a great name, by the way, Gregory of Nazianzus, one of the several great Gregories in church history. But he said something about the incarnation, and it includes this concept that we're referring to in 2 Corinthians. Gregory wrote, Christ was made poor that we through his poverty might be rich. He took the form of a servant that we might regain liberty. He descended that we might be exalted. He was tempted that we might overcome. He was despised that he might fill us with his glory. He died that we might be saved. He ascended to draw to himself those lying prostrate on the ground through sin's stumbling block. There are riches in salvation that await us in glory with total fullness. But we're rich now. 
We're liberated from the trap of this sin-stricken world. We're liberated from being enslaved to stuff that fades. We don't look at it the same way if we're in Christ. We know it's only temporary. We know it has some purpose. And we can come through the angle of God's eternal life through Christ to see its worth and significance and how to use it. We don't have to worship the idols that people are falling to around us. We don't have to despair as the unbelieving world does. We don't have to worry about the affairs of this world as if it's all out of control. God is sovereign over it all. We're rich now because of Christ, and we've only barely begun to see what that richness entails. That brings us to the last verses of this section, where we see in Paul's uh, direction that Christians cannot be hesitant about generosity. We shouldn't be delaying about being generous. Now, there may be a delay in deciding all the many ways in which we could give in in ways that are are possible, but we shouldn't delay in or be hesitant to jump at the opportunity when God presents it to us. We can talk about gathering to worship God. We can talk about serving God, serving others, studying his word, all important things, administering the sacraments as a church. We could talk about participating in fellowship with one another, all the many things the church should be about, spreading the gospel by evangelism, meeting the needs of the poor in our midst and in our community. We can talk about all the good things the church is called to do, that Christians are supposed to do, but they do have to be paid for. It costs money to uphold the church. And it's true, as Cranfeld said, the church's need of money is a matter of, a matter of difficulty to handle with graciousness, sensitivity, and dignity. It's true. But it's not an unnecessary evil that we talk about this. In fact, it should be liberating when we come through the lens of the gospel. When we come through the lens of Christ coming as a man, God giving his son like this in the incarnation, it should be freeing to us. Paul was not timid talking about the need for generosity to the Corinthians. And the church shouldn't be that way either with each other. Honestly, the only reason why we're a little uneasy about addressing money matters in the church today is for the same reason that we're uneasy about anything else. It's become an idol to us, and it's uncomfortable when somebody suggests prying our hands off the idol. Uh, Notice Paul's approach with the Corinthians in verse 10. If you think that he'd said enough already, think again. Verse 10. And in this matter, he says to the Corinthians, I give my judgment. This is how I assess the situation, Corinthians. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So this thing I'm appealing for you to do, to give, this will go back to that kind of commitment you started to make about giving. I'm going to give you a chance to do it. Verse 11. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness and desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. So you're not just talking. Paul says it very diplomatically. So you're not just talk. You actually have a chance to do it. You can complete the thing you talked about, and you're going to feel a lot better when you do it. Because now you're going to complete that urging that was of God. You're going to finish it out. It's not like other things. Let's be honest. There's so many things we think long and hard about buying, and then we buy, and we have buyer's remorse right away. I honestly don't think, and I'm not saying that the church or charitable organizations always do the exact right thing with the money that you give or we give, Um, but in general, you're not going to have quote-unquote buyer's remorse, terrible way to put stewarding God's resources, but you know what I mean. You won't have buyer's remorse over your giving towards the proclamation or promotion of God's glory and grace through that proclamation or by helping people in some way. You're not going to have that kind of remorse that you will over the pair of shoes you got that you're like, maybe they're not as good as they thought they were or whatever it might be. It's not, there's a reason for that because of, of 
how you're viewing it and why you're giving it. Paul says in verse 11, so now finish doing it as well so that your readiness and desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, if you're compelled, if you know you should, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. So he's not saying you have to do what the Macedonians did and give out beyond your means. From what you have, look at it, discern what can be given, and give it. Give it. And all of this will allow for people's needs to be met. Their first need is spiritual, to know the gospel, to understand the gospel, to grow in the gospel. But they have physical needs as well that connect with these things. It's hard to to hear that message proclaimed when there's stress and difficulty about those necessities of life that people need. So the church has always been about helping in this regard. This is what the Corinthians were compelled to do for Jerusalem. And this could come back at some point and actually affect their need in the future. It's our collective responsibility, if you think about it, as a local church, um, to be as healthy and strong as we can as a local church, providing for all those financial needs that we have, so that we can be strong for membership, for having more people grow in Christ, and then to effectively impact the culture around us, the world around us, our community around us, to be a place that can provide for these spiritual and physical things as they come up and as we have opportunity, as God allows. Um, So this is why we are so careful to be on top of this and, and not hesitant about being generous in this respect. I hope that we're never, as a church, you know, we're in different phases of the church's life. Um, I guess you could say we're still in a young phase to some degree. But whatever phase that we're in, I hope we're never in a phase where we're, we stop being generous as we have opportunities corporately to give. And also as individual members, that we would just carry ourselves as people who apprehend the grace of God and Christ. And when we are faced with places we can help contribute We want to jump at that opportunity and know God's called us to be those kinds of people. Those people act out of our apprehension of God's grace in Christ to us. Celebrating that, showing that we believe it by what we do. Notice what else he says in verse 14. Your abundance at the present time should supply their need. So at the present time, the Corinthian Christians were in a better place and so they could give to those who had less. That may not always be the case, he says in the second part of verse 14, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. Now, this isn't promoting some kind of socialism or or some economic system that Christians are supposed to follow. It's just simply a shepherd saying, listen, right now there's difficulty among the Christians over here. I'm not commanding you, but if you're so compelled by the grace of God, give to help. It might be a time where they would be doing the same thing for you. It's in that spirit that this shepherd is talking to the sheep. You have it to give, and they need it, so give. Uh, Dahl calls the gift of money to others a visible sign of an invisible grace. It's a beautiful picture for sure. And then verse 15, he closes with a reference to the book of Exodus. See if you remember where in Exodus this occurs. He mentions to them, It is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. What does that mean? That's a reference to when God supplied for the Israelites' daily needs by giving them manna after he led them out of Egypt. They were, they were completely dependent on him for their daily bread. By the way, so are we. Uh, we're not dependent on Costco for our daily bread or tomorrow's daily bread or two weeks from, and when your boys are off to college, three weeks of your daily bread if you buy it at Costco. Uh, really, every day it's supplied for us by God. But in the time of the Exodus, it was 
so obvious this was the case, they had to wait for the manna to come every day. And the deal was when the manna came, um, they would scurry around and grab it and eat it, and they were supposed to eat as much as they needed for the day. But of course, their tendency is to hoard it up and to get as much. I'm going to get more and more and more. But guess what? It spoils, and it wouldn't even last the next day. So even though it says um, those who gathered much, they had nothing left over. It didn't. At the end of the day, they only had what they needed. And then those who gathered little had no lack. See, it's perspective. God will supply what I need. I'll do what he says, and I'll eat what he gives me. And then I'm not worried about it. I don't have any lack. I'm not sensing or living out of that lack. But on the other side, if we're running around hoarding, racing to gather it as if it's not going to be there tomorrow, when God says it will be, that shows us someone who's actually very poor spiritually. Using this example, Paul condemns any extensive covetousness among the Corinthians who might have been hoarding in this way, hopefully freeing them to think on Christ and then act from that apprehension of God's grace. You know, the more money personally I can think of over my, over my life, the more money that I make or get, the more difficult it can be for me to trust in God. I found myself trusting more in uh, what I have to provide. And that's not a good feeling. That's actually, a, a, it feels like a digression. We often talk, Sherry and I often talk, and many of you have probably done this too, uh, back when we were first married, in the kind of reliance we had upon God, that I can't tell you I have it the same way. Now, there are many more things in my life that I'm worried about now. I, you know, with children that are grown in different phases, I get all that. None of this is condemnatory to where you are in your thinking. I'm just saying personally, I remember being much more simple, and, and I can't believe how little we had. It makes no mathematical sense, like how I got through seminary. I remember what the bill was, what Sherry made teaching as a Christian school teacher, what I made on the grounds crew, and it didn't add up. But at the end of the day, we came here, we came to redeem our first year, net worth minus 100 bucks. We were ecstatic. I mean, that was perfect. That was better than I could ever imagine, because I was worried I would have all sorts of money and still be paying off. Uh, I just remember those, the simplicity of those days. But as I've made more money and have more stuff, I find myself being a lot more trusting in myself. So I say to you, when there are opportunities to give to your church or to good organizations, uh, like the, if you hear that bell ringing, don't, don't, don't go the other door. Go to that door. No matter what Chick-fil-A says about it, go and bring your money to that pot. Or, or to the City Union Mission or to Advice and Aid or to any number of organizations that we as Christians could be generous to help because they're promoting something that is glorifying to God or to your local church. Uh, tithing is, of course, a beginning. You know, I think of that too. You know, the pastor tells you to tithe and the pastor tithes. Well, of course the pastor tithes. People know whether I do or not. You may not, but the, the deacons do. What a loser would I be if I didn't tithe? Okay, so how holy is that? point is, may God give me a continuing sense of dependence upon him in that just a gratefulness that he's given us so much, us and me, that we have so many chances to keep giving that, and I hope that would be uh, a picture of the apprehension of God's grace that we have in our own lives, in our own congregation, that we would be just like that. And it's a growing process, and there are challenges all along the way. You know, when I was reading C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity many years ago, I was struck by something that he said about giving because I was in a place, especially when I was reading this, where a particular church I was part of, there was lots of scandal about money and how people were always asking for money in that organization. And when I read this section from, from Lewis, it kind of set me into a different way of thinking about giving. Listen to what Lewis says. I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc. is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, 
I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charity's expenditure excludes them. That's a great challenge for us to think of where we are. And then come back to verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. O oh Lord, it is, it is true that we are challenged uh, every day in a, in a place of affluence and great material blessing to love that stuff too much and lose a bit of our apprehension of the greatness of your sacrifice in sending Jesus as a man to die for us. Lord, please guard us from this. You blessed us as a church so mightily, and you've given great generosity to, to our membership. Lord, I pray that you would grow that even more in us. And I know this comes, O oh Lord, from our growth in understanding your grace to us in Christ. May that always be at the forefront of our, our contemplation and our teaching and our study of your word, that we would apprehend your grace all the more, and that by true apprehension, Lord, it would grow our generosity with material things. And give us wisdom about how to use these things as individual believers and as a church so as to make the most eternal impact. Lord, we are grateful for your generosity to us. And in, we, in this Advent Christmas season, help us not just to give lip service when we tell the Christmas story or read the Christmas story, to, to give lip service about, well, the greatest gift is, is God sending a son. Help us to really lay hold of that truth contemplate that, meditate upon it, and may it impact the way we give, the way we manage the things that you have put into our temporary care in this short life that we are living. Please do this for your glory. Please grow us in our apprehension of your grace so that we might manifest your generous character in all that we do. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.